This is tape number four in our series, Thriving in the World. This message is part two of Strategy for Being a Witness. Acts chapter one, verse eight from the New American Standard is Dr. Joel Hunter's scripture text, and it reads as follows. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And now, let's join Dr. Joel Hunter for part two of Strategy for Being a Witness, in the continuation of his series, Thriving in the World. Well, this is the last of a four-part series... Yay, we made it! About how Christians deal with the world and how every type of Christian has a value to the kingdom. And about how, if we pay attention, we can put together an effective process with which to address some folks who are being caught up in the philosophies of the world and the ways of the world, even ourselves. To the end, that we can fulfill Acts chapter 1, verse 8 that says, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's our job. And so today we're going to complete going through that process. Now, let me say a couple of housekeeping things before I get started. First of all, in case you don't trust your notes... We have made up for you a sheet that you can get from the usher on your uh, exit from this place that has the salient points of the last four weeks so that you can work off this sheet, you can look at the sheet, you can say, okay, there's the outline. Secondly, it struck me Friday, it always strikes me late, I don't think ahead very well. It struck me Friday that as I, as I went to close this process, what a difficult thing it is to speak to specifics in any preaching context. Of course, we always rely on the Holy Spirit to make it specific, but especially in a context like this, there may be some questions that you have. There may be some times you said, you know, Hunter, I, I hear what you're saying, but how would that apply to this? Or, or what about this? Um, let, let's just do a one-time shot, just a spontaneous thing. Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, I'll be in this room. If you have some questions about this process or there's some of you who want to come and just discuss it and say, let's put a little bit more uh, rubber on the road here. Let's, uh, let's see how that would work in this situation. Come ahead. Come on and we'll just we'll talk about it. All right? So that there can be some give and, uh, give and take and some and discussion. And those of you who may not have discussion just want to listen in. Can, you know, you're invited. Now, here's the one problem we have. We have this building scheduled almost um, all full every day of the week, which is great. We want to use it. Um, but the only room that's available is this room, uh, Tuesday night. So if you are coming here at 7 o'clock to talk with me, um, you will probably need to arrange child care on your own because we just don't have it available. And some of the discussion may not be something you want your kids to hear. I don't know what we're going to get into or what we're not going to get into. Um, so that's the only hitch. But if you want to talk about it, come on and we'll just we'll uh, chew on it together. All right, now here we go. You remember last week? Put up the last put up, put up the slide. Last week we began by by two steps, and we said 
there's a very valuable group within our culture of people that we that H. Richard Niebuhr would call the Christ of culture people. Their main um, emphasis is that Christianity should identify with the culture so that we can be leavened within the culture. Now, the problem is most people who do that lose their distinctiveness as Christians. But all the same, what they are given to the body to remind us of is this, that we need to be able to listen to people to whom we have been sent. We need to listen so well that they can sense our love, that they can sense our respect and our understanding of them. Listen to this. Unless you listen to someone so well that you actually understand their thinking, you have no discussion. All you have is people waiting their turn to speak. There is no discussion there. So the first thing that we learn is that we have to hear someone so accurately that we can actually state their case better than they can and in more favorable terms than they can. When we have achieved that degree of listening, then we can go to the next step. And the next step comes from the Christ above culture people. These are the people who always say, look up, you know. Get some transcendent focal point that you can go toward. Now, the weakness of this group is that usually we don't look to Jesus enough. We get some little man-made system that we try to improve our lives instead of going all the way. But if in that conversation, after you've listened to someone who has been influenced by the ways of the world and they're trying to get life to work by these different humanistic you know, devices, ask them, what are you going for here? What's your goal? What's your ultimate? And it will surprise you to hear that they want for their life what you want for yours. God has given us all basically the same desires. All of us want to be loved. All of us want to be respected. All of us want to live lives that we deem significant. All of us want to have peace. And the sense that you have lived life as it ought to be lived. All of us want that. When people dream about that, they will come up with a conclusion sooner or later. And the conclusion is this. I can't get there on my own. And I'm certainly not going to get there with the life I'm living right now. I'm kind of band-aiding it right now and I'm kind of jerry-rigging life so that it will work for me. But, but it never works for very long. Next slide. Now we start today. The next slide is this. This is where the Christ against culture people come in. That's that segment of Christianity that says, don't compromise with the world. Withdraw from the world. Friendliness with the world is enmity with God. It's, you're being contaminated. And what you need is a pure theology. You need a pure way of living. You need to be sold out for Christ. Well, you know what? They're right. They're right as far as the right goes. What they bring to us is the next piece of this conversation. The piece that follows the frustration or the sense that I'm never going to get there on my own. And that piece is this. 
that God has made this world with absolutes. Not everything is an absolute. And the closest any of us can come is an approximation to the absolute. But there are absolutes. And what people really want is to find something that makes sense. You know, most people today still think, but the think the thinking that they do has been shifted to emotional thought or hormonal thought. Most people, though, still have a desire for something that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And what these people remind us of is this, that God has made the world in a certain way. There are things that will always be true. There are things that will always be firm. There are things that will never be shaken, and life won't really come out right until you discover what those things are and live according to those things. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer puts it this way. First of all, God is speaking in verse 26. And God says, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. He's talking about a sifting process here. Now, the the writer of Hebrews comments, verse 27, And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God gives us a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And it doesn't take a great deal of persuasion before people understand that. This is not a surprise to any reasonable person. The history of Western civilization has been based upon the fact that there are absolutes. The greatest minds from Socrates to Freud recognized that there were absolutes. Aristotle said this. This is a paraphrase. It's tough to get exact from the ancient Greek. If you think that there are no absolutes, if you think the world is a matter of your opinion, why don't you walk over a precipice and think away gravity? That's pretty strong, isn't it? It was Freud, who is no friend of Christianity, who said this. People who think there are no absolutes, who think that their mind can mold reality, might as well try to use tear gas for narcotics. Plato said this. He said, you know, when our words don't match our beliefs, that's hypocrisy. But when our words and beliefs don't match reality, that's being a liar. We don't call many people liars anymore. We call lots of people hypocrites. Why? Because in this society, we're not so sure anymore that there are absolutes. And so it seems so strong to call someone a liar. But in fact, people 
the best minds from ancient times up till, until today have recognized that there is such a thing as an objective reality and it can either be your best friend or your worst enemy. If you live according to it, it is your best friend. If you live in adversity to it, it is your worst enemy. Jesus put it like this. He put it in terms of a rock. He said, wise are those who build their house on a rock. But then he talked about people who run headlong into a rock and are crushed. This world is made with absolutes. God gave us those so that we would have something we could be sure of. And you know what? As you tell people this, as people say, you know, I... I I'm just trying the best I can. As you say to them, you know, there's a certain way that God has made the world to operate. The Creator who made all of the people also made all of the universe. And this Creator has revealed Himself in Scripture. And there's a certain way in there that tells us what is a constructive way to live and what is not a constructive way to live. And so therefore, we probably ought to try the constructive way. They will know what you're talking about. You know why? Because if you're going the other route, if you're just trying to gerrymander life into what works, it never feels right. I mean, there's always something a little off, and you know it. I, 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 have, I don't have a mechanical bone in my body, but every once in a while I ask my guys to put something together for me. And, and, and I asked Josh and Isaac the other day to put together some bookshelves in my office. and So I said, okay. And I came back a couple hours later, and I said, well, how'd it go? And, uh, and Josh said, well, the first one took an hour and 45 minutes, and the second one took 15 minutes. And I said, well, uh, what, what happened? Didn't you read the instructions? Well, no, they said all the pieces were there, and we kind of eyeballed it and put it together. And, and, uh, but I, we got it done, and it probably would have worked, but it just didn't quite look right. And what we had done is just kind of put a few things on backwards. How do you know? Well, we read the instructions then, see. And after you read the instructions, then we could kind of see how things went. And so we took it all apart and we put it all back together. And now you've got yourself a bookshelf. And of course, after we put that one together, then the second one was a lot easier. We all live life like that. You don't have to convince somebody that they've got something on backwards. They know it. They feel it. Your voice doesn't have to get loud. You don't have to get condemning. When you say there are ways to live life constructively that are unchangeable, unshakable, they know it in their mind. And they're just looking for something that makes sense. So it's very important that you're able to do that. But it's also very important that you can look out for the reaction after you've stated that case. Give me the next slide. The next reaction is, oh yeah, now you're going to start preaching to me about how everybody should live a perfect life. Well, I want to tell you something. I'm not perfect. Never been perfect, never will be perfect. So I can't live according to how you're saying. Aha. Now, here's a major point. Because that's Satan going in there and saying, you know what? Whispering in their ear. They're expecting you to be perfect. You can't do it. Sign off now. And so there's this, there's this real reaction. See, I'm not going to fail, so I'll quit before I ever fail. What you have to do here is recognize 
that God does not operate in a perfect world and he even planned it like that. Really? Yes. You have to separate absolutes from perfection. We are called to live according to absolutes. We are not expected to live perfect lives. God made a weird world in a weird way for weird people for his perfect plan. Now, this is really strange. You would expect just what they're thinking. Starting off in this thing, you begin to expect, well, okay, what God's going to do is call out some people according to that last plan and make them perfect and make them uh, know what God is thinking and make them able to always have the right words and always live the right life and never fall to temptation. And um, whatever God asks, they'll, they'll, they'll give them that. That's what you would expect. But God doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, it says in here that he does the opposite. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. through 10. Paul who was the main guy on the God squad at this time. Main guy. Who curiously describes himself in 1 Timothy 1.15 as the chief of all sinners, even after he's been saved. Who is given this tremendous revelation from God. He says, oh, I have seen revelations beyond my wildest dreams. But even in the midst of all of that understanding, what's he write? He writes this. He says, in order to keep me from getting puffed up, I was sent a messenger from Satan, a thorn in my flesh. Now I asked God three times to take that away from me. But he said no. He said... No, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, For my strength, you can repeat this with me, is made perfect in weakness. Now, how weird is that? Yeah. God has put together this world in a paradoxical form. Somebody can say, I can't live perfect. And you say, I can't either. Well, you don't understand what you're asking me to do. If I'm supposed to live according to God, things will be destroyed. I'll do a lot of damage. And you're supposed to say, yeah, I know. But you don't understand. This isn't a deal that's easy. Oh, I know. I'm going to wreck their life. I'm going to wreck my I'm going to wreck everything. I know. Why now, how in the world is God going to bring good out of that? He just is. And let me tell you how. God has designed a world that was not meant for us to live in heaven yet, nor was it meant for us to live in the pits of sin. No, it was meant for us to straddle. As we keep our eyes on Christ, as we, as we live according to these absolutes, or approximate these absolutes as well as we can, we continue to live in a world that is only partially available, only partially healed and progressively healed. And God sends us to people not to say, you know what, I got it and you don't. But God sends us to people to say, neither one of us got it. We've got to go to him.
He sends us to people to say, I know, I keep messing up too. Only God can fix my life too. I know it doesn't, I haven't got it all figured out either. Only God can figure it out. God put together the world in a weird way. Even physically, He put it together weird. You know what? Every once in a while, I have a little fantasy about how God did this. Now, this is just, of course, this is theologically silly, but, but I, you know, just the way He put it together, I picture the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at the beginning going, let's have a little fun with this deal here. Tell you what, the Father speaking, Son, He says, see if you can uh, put together something that, uh, if its parts are separated, they're poison. But if they're put together, they're an element absolutely necessary to life. So Jesus is going, all right, I think I can do that. He's making some stuff here. Comes up with salt. Separated, sodium and chlorine are poisons. You take them into your body, you die. Put together, they're absolutely necessary for your life. So I think the father said, okay, I'll tell you what. Tell you again, let, me, let me tell you. Find something that if it were separated into its parts, both parts would be highly flammable. But put together, it's used to put out fires. What did he come up with? Water, H2O. Hydrogen, oxygen. Separate them. You've got something entirely volatile. Put them together, you've got something that puts out fire. Weird. Weird stuff. I think I think God says, I'll tell you what, come up with uh, some neutral stuff. That if it's put together, it becomes one of the most powerful drawing forces in the world. The Alnico magnet is the most powerful magnet in the world. You know why? I don't either. <laughs> Because its elements, aluminum, nickel, and cobalt, none of them have any magnetic power by themselves whatsoever. But put them together, and they're a tremendous drawing force. Weird stuff. I think he was just practicing for men and women. (laughs) I do. Weird. The way God's built the world. Well, you know what? It's not only weird in its basic physical element, it's weird in its moral element. For God to say, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. For God to say, you know, you'll never be perfect, but but an approximation will allow me to show you how I am adequate for you. Let me ask you this. When you go down the street... You listen to the car radio. You all have your favorite kind of songs. I got my favorite kind of song. I like uh, I like ballads, big ballads. I like uh, Whitney Houston type stuff. You know, stuff that's just electrifying, Sandy Patty stuff. You know, just big voice, big ballads. Driving down the street, and a, and and the song comes out. A whole new world comes on. Okay, that's a great song. Clear voice, powerful stuff. And you think, oh, what a great song. Now, if you're driving with my family, it gets about two bars into the song, and this happens. 
world fantastic point of view. You're driving along, you want to hear the song, somebody starts singing beside you. And your first reaction is to go, Will you shut up? I want to hear this song. But step back a little bit. And after a while you think, you know, that's neat. That song's in them. And they're trying for an approximation of this deal. (laughs) And you're just glad to be riding with them no matter how close they come. And you're glad that it's in them and that they're operating according to the song. God must feel that same thing. He must see all his people down here going, Oh, 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 <laughs> Off beat, off tune. He must be saying, That's great. You know? They're trying to get the song. That's good. That's good. We need to go to people and say, Look, I'm trying for the same song. I sympathize with you. I know this is a broken deal. Neither one of us can do this quite right. But we both have the same Lord. And His specialty is to work through our weakness. He can fix it. He can fix it. Now, the last point is this. That as we're able to go humbly to folks and say, I haven't got it together, but I know someone who does, and I know someone who can help. The last point is to be able to turn these folks who you have been sent to address in the name of the Lord over to Him. To realize fully what you've just said, and that is this, that you can't fix it that only God can. I don't know how often we sign on as the general chairman of the universe. I don't know how often you do that in your life. I do it practically every day. I've got to manage this deal, God, because you don't seem to be paying attention. Every day, I need to step back and say, whoops, wait a minute. God's gig, not my gig. Every day, I need to be able to take my hands off of a situation and watch God as He manages His universe. Now, the trick to this last one is to realize that you're a very small part of what God's doing, but a very important part. You know, human pride almost has to have it all. We almost feel like we've got to do the whole, the whole deal for God or we're just not going to do it. We need to uh, think that without us, God's not going to get it accomplished. And that's exactly what Satan's whispering in our ear. You know when you went to talk to them about that? I don't think they understood what you were saying. You need to go back because you forgot to say this and this and this. And oh, God's given you a scripture today that you can give to them. And they need somebody to kind of hold them accountable. So just why don't you go over there and just show up and just hold them accountable? And in doing so, you are getting in somebody's way. No. What we need to do is to state God's case. 
that God has the answer, that we don't, that we're walking along with Him and we invite them along too. But then we need to release and leave it up to God. And you know, the action that will help us do that is to give them something. Now, I don't know how this works. I just know it does. First of all, it bears the character of God. It says the same thing as John 3.16, For God so loved, He gave. And you need, when you address somebody, at the end of that conversation, that will only go on one time, to say, let me just give you something to, to remind you I'm with you in this thing. And so you give them a part of yourself. That helps you give them up to God. It also puts them in a receiving position, which is the perfect position to experience God's unmerited favor. That's what will change their lives. Nothing we say, nothing we do, only a reflection of God's grace in our lives. That's what's going to do it. We need to say, we just receive God's grace in this thing. He's going to fix it somehow. We're dependent on Him, and He wants to come close to us. Very important. You know, I, I've been reading a, another book on uh, physics. This is about dark matter of the universe, and, and it's called Through a Universe Darkly. Do you know that 90, it's, it's guesstimated now, 90% of the matter of this universe is undetectable. They are naming it dark matter because they can't see it, they can't detect it, but just in formulas, that's how it comes out. And the authoress of this book says, it's as if when we're looking out at the universe, the galaxies and all of the luminaries are like white caps on the ocean that distract us and make us forget that they're only a small part of that ocean. That there's this huge, overpowering magnitude beneath them. That's how we need to think of our activity in this world. What we do is at best the white caps. The effect we have for God is at best the white caps. God is sovereign in this thing. He's the one that's working. And what we need to do is to say, God, as I face you, as I experience your grace in my life, as I am facing you and being changed, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, from one degree of glory to another, as I become a reflection of your grace... That's the best I can do in the way of witnessing. That's the difference between being a witness and doing witnessing. That's why God called us to be witnesses instead of do witnessing. Because that's who we pay attention to. It's from God whom all blessings flow. Let me tell you one story and then I'll quit. Franz Joseph Haydn, one of the greatest composers that ever lived... In his waning days, he created a wonderful piece of music called the creation. And in the creation, this is 1808, in the creation, there is a piece at which 
He is building up to the dawn of light. Now I want you to picture this. They wheel in this composer to the inaugural performance of this great symphony effort. The audience knows he's there. And as they proceed to this piece of the music that builds toward the dawn of light and then crashes into its existence, the audience cannot hold back any longer. They all stand and with wild applause interrupt the symphony to face Haydn. And Haydn, knowing that the only way that they can pay attention further to that music is to somehow interrupt that applause. So the only thing he can do is to stand up from his wheelchair very slowly. And as the audience sees that he's about to speak, they become so quiet. And this bony, withered arm goes up. And he says to them, no, 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 no. Not me. From heaven, all this comes. Let me ask you what you're saying with your life and how you're approaching people. From heaven, all this comes. People will look to what you depend on Pray with me. God, help us to see that it is not the eloquence of our words, nor the rationale of our argument, nor the force of our emotions that makes a difference in this world. Our effort and our cooperation is simply the white cap on the great ocean of your sovereignty. And so as we look for a way to make a difference for you, as we struggle for a way to live according to your absolutes, help us never to take our eyes off Jesus. And help us over and over again to praise the fact that as our lives are filled with your glory and the appreciation for what you are doing, the world will be changed much more than we could ever manipulate it into being. God, we praise you. You are God. We are not. Thanks.